Good morning to all of you. It's great to see you. Uh, as you can see from the title slide and from your bulletins, our topic this morning is going to be on the topic of work. Now, when it comes to the topic of work, many of us know and acknowledge that work is good. And if you remember what Pastor Henry preached on when he returned from sabbatical, God intended for us to enjoy the rewards of our labors. And even though our labors may at times be in vain, when we remember the master of our labor and the eternal significance of our labor, even if our labor may appear to us as small, we can have great confidence that God will use us and our testimony to bring him glory as people see how we strive to honor Christ above all else in our work ethic. So our goal this morning is to springboard off this familiar idea of work is work being good, to spark a conversation about how Christians ought to approach our work. And we're going to look through various scriptures to do so. And our, our question is, how can we go about translating what we know intellectually about work into the way that we honor God in our work, whatever that work may be? And so as we explore how to apply a biblical understanding of work to our practical approach to work, let's pray and ask God for his help this morning. Father, we are so thankful to you for your good works and for how you've created us to be your representatives here on earth. And as such, Lord, we pray that you would help us to honor you in everything in all of our approach to life. And may we strive to please you in all respects. May you receive all the glory and all the honor this morning as we see what your word has to say about the topic of work. And may you help us be better representatives of you in our workplaces uh, as a result. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Many of you who know me and you've watched me grow up here at this church know me as a Costco man. And I don't have this reputation because I have an executive membership, which I do. Uh, it's not because I get the majority of my groceries at Costco, which I do. Um, and it's not because I get my gas at Costco, which I do. Uh, and it's also not because I get an embarrassing large amount of my wardrobe from Costco, which ashamedly is true. My wife's working on it, though. Um, my reputation as a Costco man is due to the fact that I worked at Costco for over two and a half years. And while I spent a good portion of my time as a cashier and a cashier assistant, I had the privilege of also being promoted to a return to vendor clerk. And basically, you know, all the returns that get brought up front, they, get back, they, they were brought back to me for further processing. Now, I know, I know that some of you, upon hearing that I was once a Costco employee, may get excited and you are going to ask, did you get any discounts? And you're going to ask, were you paid $25 an hour? Because I saw online somewhere that Costco cashiers get $25 an hour. And as much as I would love to tell you about all the secrets uh, that Costco has, that those websites that tell you secrets about Costco uh, don't tell you, I'm not here this morning to talk to you about Costco. I don't want to talk about Costco. What I want to talk to you about, based off of the background that, that I have, um, is how we can reflect on God's intention for working for his glory, no matter what kind of job we have, whether we like it or not, whether it's physical or whether it's office. Each type of work has its own challenges. 
And we can accidentally dishonor one another when we elevate other professions as more important than more important and necessary than other jobs, which are also equally essential. You don't have to be a pastor in order to glorify God in your profession. You can glorify God in your vocation no matter what you do. And so, when we tell people that their job is more important, more fun, uh, more necessary than our own, we accidentally, we functionally reject God's provision and purpose for vocations that we do or that other people do. And so while another person's job might seem to be better to us because they get to enjoy privileges we don't, the fact of the matter is that work, no matter whether you're a student, a parent, a retail worker, or an office worker, is something, or any other kind of worker, is something that God has ordained each of us to do excellently for his glory. If God has gifted and granted us the ability to work, even though at times the conditions of our work is less than ideal, then we want to make sure that we honor God in the way that we go about our work. And this morning, we're going to examine the scriptures. We're going to find three biblical truths that shape, or that ought to influence our attitudes regarding work. Three biblical truths that ought to influence our attitudes regarding work. And the first biblical truth that ought to influence our attitude regarding work is that God ordains works good purpose. God ordains works good purpose. As always, when we want to examine what God intended from the beginning, we want to turn to the book of Genesis. So please turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Here in Genesis 1, we have the creation account, how God created the universe and all it contains in six literal days. And as we get to the sixth day of creation, in verse 26, we see the creation of man. Verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the field, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Notice that after God creates man in his image, God appoints a purpose for man's existence. Many a person has wondered what their purpose on this planet uh, is. And they've wrestled with this idea, regardless of their belief in God. Why am I here? What was I meant to do? We typically ask these kinds of questions when we're graduating from high school, and we're trying to figure out which college should I go to, what major should I declare. But the question can even arise when you graduate from college. And you realize that you either cannot or do not want to find employment in your field. We can even 
ask this question when we find work in our field and our work is either not as fulfilling as we thought it would be or perhaps our expectation for what our jobs were going to look like do not match up with what working life in our field actually is in reality. And so it can be during these moments when that we experience these feelings and thoughts of not knowing who we are and why we're here that we might ask the question, did we miss our purpose? Did we somehow miss our purpose? Does our lack of purpose mean that life is meaningless? And while it's tempting to allow for our emotional and wrong thinking to influence our outlook on life, what we see here in the account of Genesis 1, it reminds us that God did not create man to exist randomly and purposely. He created us He created us to do something. And part of that function, and remember, it's only a small part of that function, is seen in verse 26 as as we obey God's command to represent him on earth through our rule over all creation. We're supposed to have dominion over everything. We're supposed to rule over everything. Now, you and I don't often picture ourselves as kings and queens who rule over God's creation. So another way to put it is God, he gives us the resources that are here on this planet to steward, to take care of, so that we can be a blessing to others. He gave us this planet and its resources, not so we could hoard it and benefit only ourselves, but so that we can use the abundance we have to further his plans and purposes to save his people. God has placed these resources and skills in our hands to, so that we can do God's work for God's glory. Verse 28 adds another wrinkle to the task that God has for mankind. It says, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Um, and what we see here with this wrinkle is that in order to rule over the earth, we are also to fill the earth as well. We have been commissioned to occupy the planet that God has given us. And so the only way that man can fulfill God's creation mandate to rule over the creation is if we are fruitful and we multiply. This is contrary to a growing trend among some individuals in our world. We're taking care of the environment and the planet that God has stewarded to us uh, means that we don't, we don't use the planet. Right? That we stop having children because humans are terrible for the environment. God does not intend for humans to consider the planet as having a higher sense of importance than the human lives who live in it. The planet is not important, is not more important than human lives. And while we are to, while we are responsible to reasonably care for the planet that God has given us, the planet does not come first. People do. God has a purpose for his people in creation. He was not surprised by the fall of mankind in the garden, nor is he fighting to redeem and recover his creation from the effects of sin as if He was caught off guard as if Satan found a vulnerability in his plan. And now God is working on a patchwork to to repair the vulnerability uh, so that the the system works. God has always intended for mankind to do work, which is why he gives man a purpose right from the beginning. 
And it's for that reason that God appoints man to work on day six of creation. And it's for this reason, following the provision of man's work assignments, God looks at his own work at the end of the day, at the end of the sixth day, and he calls it good. In Genesis 2, God provides an in-depth look at what he called man to do as he provides a flashback, if you will, uh, on what occurred on day six of creation. Skip down with me to, to chapter 2, verse 15. So this is a flashback, um, slow motion replay, if you will, of what happened uh, on day six. Then the Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Then the, uh, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. We're going to stop there. But as we backtrack... And we re-examine what God did following his creation of man. We see that God purposely takes man, he takes Adam, and puts him in the Garden of Eden to work. He was to cultivate the garden and keep it. Not only that, he was given the task to name every single animal. God, he planted the garden, but here he says, I planted it, you cultivate it, you keep it. And not only that, but God wanted Adam to practice his rulership over the animals by naming them. Right? He exercises his authority by naming them. And Adam did not get to rest until he did his work. He didn't even receive his helper until after the work was done. And so, as we reflect on work, God himself works. And he has also set it in the heart of his creatures man, that they too are to work. It's not as if we are supposed to live our lives in a perpetual Sabbath or perpetual vacation. We continue to work, even on our day of worship today, because part of the way that we represent God is through our work. If you said, today's the Sabbath, today's Sunday, it's a holy day, I'm not going to do any work, and you go home and you just sit there, that's not good, right? Someone's going to get mad at you. And you're going to be hungry because you're not supposed to work, right? And you're just sitting there. Right? If that was the case, if we were called not to work at all, then worship days will be miserable days because you're going to sit there hungry and hurting and people are going to be griping at you because you're not doing anything. And I know football season just started, so you know some, people, some of you are going to be in that position. Now, as we zoom back out of the, of the flashback, of how the sixth day of creation occurred. We are reminded of how the sixth day was summarized in Genesis 1. The creation of man and and the appointment of man to work are all good. right? He called it good. It was good in his sight. So work is not an unintended consequence of sin. It was intended by God for us so we might accomplish his purposes. Therefore, Christians ought to have a positive view of work, knowing that God has ordained for all of us to work in some capacity. 
And that leads us to our second biblical truth that ought to influence our attitude regarding work, which is that sin perverts work's good purpose. Sin perverts work's good purpose. If work has always been a part of God's good purpose, at what point was it corrupted so that we do not view it as a good gift that God intended it to be? Return with me to Genesis three seventeen to 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, some of you are thinking, probably, well, of course sin contributed to the problem. It's in the title of this point. And we all know from Sunday school and from other sermons that we've heard that sin is our greatest problem. So how is, is this anything new or relevant to my understanding of work? You know, there's nothing new to us. When we point to the entrance of sin into the world as the turning point for when our view of work was corrupted, we may accidentally overlook how sin also affects our view on work, since our view of work may already be negative. What we see in verses 17 through 19 is the introduction to the concept of toil. Or futility when it comes to our work. Somehow, most likely due to a cultural attitude towards work, some Christians have come to believe that hard work is a result of the fall of mankind. That if it were not for the effects of sin, work would not be hard, but it would be easy. And if sin did not come into the world, we would not have to work that hard. We just could mail it in and we'd be fine. And I hope that as you, as you hear what I just said, you begin to push back at that sentiment. Especially those of you who've been raised to believe that working hard is a good quality in a person. Working hard is a good quality. And this is confirmed back in Genesis 2 when God has Adam cultivate the entire garden. He's responsible for the entire thing. Right? And not only that, but he had to name all the animals. That's a tiresome job if it was just left up to us. Right? But Adam did that. On his own. He did it without complaint. Granted, he wasn't sinful, so he wouldn't have complained. Um, at least he wasn't sinful yet. right? But it was a work that was appointed to him nonetheless. He worked hard on day six of creation. Toil, futility, frustration, whatever you want to call it, was not a part of what it meant to work hard until sin entered the world. When sin came into the world, that's when work became toilsome. That's when it became frustrating and futile. Like a fast-moving virus, sin was injected into all of creation and it affected every last atom so that the perfect world God made would be, as Paul puts it in Romans 8.20, subjected in futility, waiting for when it too will be free from the slavery of sin when God makes all things right. Sin doesn't just affect our interpersonal relationships. It infects the entire world. It affects everything. 
All of creation is groaning, longing for God to come back and set it all right. From the moment that sin entered the world, all labor in the world was subjected to futility. Nobody has the success that they should have in their labors. Farmers will have failed crops. Those who work sanitation-type jobs will always have messes to clean. Doctors and nurses will always have sick and broken people to treat. Mechanics will always have broken vehicles to repair. You get the picture. No matter what you do for work, there will always be more for you to do. Just when you think you've made a dent in the work that you have to do, some of it slides off the top and fills that hole that you just created. So you see, hard work is not a result of the fall. The futility and the frustration that we experience in our work is a result of the fall. I mean, look at the results of sin again. The ground is cursed and it will require toil for men to eat of it. Instead of being able to easily produce food, hard labor will be required for men to receive their food. The ground will also produce thorns and thistles. You have these inedible, crop-robbing plants for those who till the earth. Uh, instead of being able to eat fruit directly from the trees the Lord uh, that the Lord provided for man, Adam would actually have to go into the field and work hard to grow the food that he wanted to eat. And we know, based off of uh, just what we have here in America, that there are a lot of people who are hungry because it, because we have to work hard for our food. And if we don't work hard or we don't have a job, we can't go get this food. And in order for Adam to have bread, he's going to have to sweat and labor hard just so that he can get all the ingredients to make bread. Most of us just go to Safeway and we just pick up a loaf. Adam actually had to grow the crops, grind it himself, put all the stuff together, and then bake it. By that time, he's probably starving. And that was not enough. God designates mankind to return to the dust from which we were made when we die. Nobody, no matter how great or small, escapes that. We'll always return to the ground from which we were formed. All the work that we do can and can be proud of is ultimately done in vain because we will all die and there will be barely any trace that we ever existed in this world. And we know this in theory, right? but sin truly touches everything in our lives. It even affects our attitudes when it comes to work, whether we are willing to admit it or not. While some of us may not express it out loud in polite company, when we are alone with those we trust, how many of you would be willing to complain about your work? Would you be tempted to slack off in response to perceived injustice from your supervisors? Let me provide you with a common list of evidence of, of sin and how it actively affects the way that we approach work. Listen and consider whether you have voice, voiced or thought about some of these things. Do you feel like you are being undervalued compared to the skill set energy and prestige that you bring to this to, to this company because you graduated from a prestigious university do you feel like you were passed up for a promotion and higher pay due to company politics do you feel like your work is taking advantage of your willingness to work hard without properly compensating you 
Do you have an embittered attitude towards those you encounter at work because of their attitude or of their treatment of you? And there are more complaints, of course, that we can list. There's more evidence of sin in our lives um, that affect our work that we can name out here. But you get the picture. We've all thought something similar to these things to these thoughts at some point in our lives. And even if you are truly innocent and some of these objectively bad things are happening to you, let me ask you a question. If God were present with you, and theologically you know that he is, and he heard your complaints, he heard your venting, would he be pleased with you? If he heard all that you say, all that you're thinking, would he be pleased with you? Would he justify you? Would he back you up? Of course not. God would not be pleased at all because we would be sinning. And so the way that sin perverts work's good purpose is not only present in frustration and toil at work, but it's also in the way that we think about the work that God grants us. Some of you might be thinking, oh, Pastor Roger, that is not fair. You can't just set me up like that and then just punch me in the gut. You can't do that. Of course God would not be pleased with what I'm feeling, thinking, or saying, but he would understand that I was upset and that I didn't really mean it. I've mentioned it before, but is not sin at the root of our venting? Are we not bitter? Are we not angry? Yes, God sees and understands our circumstances and our context. And yes, he understands why we might feel the way that we feel. But he never excuses our sinful responses to being sinned against. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 12, 17 to 21, when we are reminded not to pay back evil for evil to anyone, when, uh, uh, but to leave room for the wrath of God, since vengeance is his. Instead, we are to be kind to those who mistreat us. In Luke 6, 32 to 36, Jesus admonishes those who have adopted this idea that love ought only to be shown to those who deserve it by reminding his hearers that unbelievers operate on that same basis. Those who are a part of God's kingdom, who live here on earth as a representation of God on God's behalf, ought to operate on a basis that points others back to God so that they can see how good he is. So brothers and sisters, when you encounter work situations that you do not prefer, no matter what your profession is, Remember that sin has affected our entire view on work. Even if you don't hate your job outright, it's still entirely possible to have, for, for you to have a sinful attitude. You could be lazy. Or you could actually work too much because you love work too much. You love money too much. Right? That's a result of sin. It, it could also be wrong responses to situations and people at work. All that is because we're sinners. Right? Sin affects everything. Don't think that it doesn't. Now, I was reminded recently of an illustration for the human heart. The human heart is like a tea bag. Left on its own, you can't really tell what it is. Right? You can maybe smell it a little bit and you smell something herby, but you don't really know what it is. 
It just looks like a bunch of dried leaves in, in a bag. But when you begin to steep that tea bag in hot water, the hot water reveals what kind of tea is in the bag. And the hot water is the medium that allows for us to know what kind of tea we have in our cup. Your life circumstances are like the hot water with which you brew your tea. Right? If your heart's the tea bag, your life circumstances are the hot water with which you brew your tea. Your environment provides you with opportunities to reveal what is going on in your heart. And even if, even if you think that none of the issues regarding work that I brought up are sin issues that belong to you and your view on work, can you say that God would be honored in the way that you approach your work? whether it's your professional work or your work at home? Or would you have a reason to be ashamed? And as you consider, as you consider how you've been thinking at work or the people at work or about your work or about the situations that you're in, can you see how your sin is leaking out of your heart just like when you have a clear clear mug and you're watching the tea start to come out of the tea bag. Can you see it? Sinfulness leaks out of our hearts. You can hide it for a moment, but it constantly leaks. It's always leaking out. It's always leaking out. And I ask you these questions and I poke hard at our attitude because it's easy for us to write off our attitude and behavior, justifying it before God because compared to the bigger sin issues that exist in our lives, the way that we approach our work is not that big of a deal. That's what we think anyway. If he cares about our holiness as a whole, then we are actually called to an even higher standard than we hold ourselves to in our minds. And so since sin's perversion of work's good purpose reaches far beyond mere toil, also affecting the way that we think, feel, and, um, and act about our, our sin, or respond to our, our work, and the people that we interact with at work, we have to be careful and mindful that we don't think less of our sin than we ought to. Knowing that it is deceitful, that we may be hiding thoughts and attitudes about work that are not fully honoring to God because our motivations have self at the center. Not God's glory. While it may sound hard to be mindful of all the different ways that our sin can affect the way that we think about work, we can find hope. We can find hope in the gospel because it brings us, that hope brings us um, a reminder of what is to come. It reminds us that we can and will be like Jesus soon enough. We also get hope because we have confidence that in the end, despite our current state of sinfulness, we will be in heaven with God and that sin will no longer be a hindrance to us. And so that brings us to our third biblical truth that ought to influence our attitude regarding work, which is that God affirms work's good purpose. God affirms work's good purpose. Though sin can give us wrong ideas and attitudes about work, we are reminded from the scriptures that, that work and having to work hard are not bad things, but are a part of the task that God calls Christians to do. 
Working and subjecting yourself to the structure of professional life, such as limits on your vacation and having to work at particular hours, are not a result of the fall. It's part of the task that God has granted us during this season of life. Therefore, working is not to be despised or dreaded because God sovereignly gives us work to play a part in our daily worship to him. And while we may not see the end result of God's greater plan on this side of eternity, God is still doing something through our labors, ultimately bringing himself glory through our endeavors. In Ecclesiastes 3, 12 to 13, Solomon writes, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. As Solomon reflects on what God grants men to do in our lifetime, he concludes that the best thing for us in life is to find joy in the life that God has given and to find joy in the work that God has given. And this does not mean that if your work does not bring you joy that you should get rid of your job like Marie Kondo wants you to get rid of your clutter. Instead, as you're going about your life, God wants us to consider the goodness of all that he has given us and to be thankful to him. While we may not particularly feel joyful about everything that we experience, what are the things that we can be thankful for in our lives? Since God is giving us a good thing in work. For those of you who are in school, even if you don't love being in school, we can be thankful for the education that God gives us so that we can work later. Or we can be thankful for the opportunity that we can even go to school. For those of you working, even if your job is hard, even if it's unfulfilling, even if your job does not compensate you as you believe that you should be compensated, even if your work situation is not the greatest, you can still be grateful for the provision of God in your life. You have work. You have a job. You have a means by which you can take care of yourself and your family. Someone once told me, right before I graduated, that we shouldn't be too proud to flip burgers. Why did he say that to me? Because work is a good thing. Work is a good thing. Right? And God provides that for us so that we can learn how to take care of ourselves and so that we can also be a blessing to others. Right? The fact that you have money is not a bad thing. Right? You shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that you have money. Right? God gives you that so that you can use it to bless other people. And so you shouldn't despise that. Right? And you can be thankful for that then. For those who have experienced the richness of God's mercy and grace in salvation, we should, of all people, be some of the most grateful people on the planet. What we see here from Ecclesiastes is that even after the fall, God reaffirms that work and hard work at that is not a result of sin. But how does an understanding of the gospel help us have a better approach to the work that God has for us? For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, who have had all of our sins forgiven because we've placed our faith in Christ and repented of our sins, sin no longer has a hold on us. Right? Paul confirms this in Romans 6, 1-14. We don't have time to read the whole thing, but a summary of the situation tells us that those who have died to sin when they believed in Christ are dead to sin. 
So they should no longer be enslaved to sin. And so when we look back at our sinful thoughts and responses to work, are you tempted to have a poor work ethic because your work situation has discouraged you? Are you tempted to treat coworkers coldly or to lie to them because you don't like them and you don't want to get close to them? Are you tempted to gossip about others at your work because you're looking for opportunities to tear others down? Are you tempted to cut corners at work so that you can get the edge that you need to fight for promotions? Some of you might experience those things. And what we know from Romans 6 is that we are no longer enslaved to sin. We're dead to it. And so though you may be tempted, the gospel reminds us that you don't have to give in to those sins. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 explains that we do not have a great high priest who cannot, uh, who, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Because Christ has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet he was without sin. And as a result of his sympathy to us, we can, with great confidence, draw near to Christ, knowing that he will give us the mercy and grace that we need to flee from sin. He will give it to us. You may believe that you are alone in this temptation, that no one else understands, and that no one else experienced this except for you. And that is not what Hebrews 4 is telling us. The God of all grace understands. And he gives you the grace you need in order to fight sin. As a result, the gospel gives us hope. Because we know that God gives us the grace that we'll need through Christ to deal with our sinful thoughts and approach to work. That sounds good, doesn't it? Isn't that hopeful? But what does that look like? Because... If I pray to God to have a better attitude when I go to work and nothing changes, does that mean, does that mean that God does not want to help me deal with my sin? Am I justified in my sin? Because I prayed to God, I asked him for help, and I still feel the way that I feel. Does does that mean that God doesn't want me to hold, uh, to get rid of it yet? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. One of my professors puts it this way. Jesus does not obey for you. Jesus does not obey for you. You can pray to him for help. You can ask him for help. But it's not like you're just supposed to sit there and just wait for Jesus to change your heart automatically. He doesn't doesn't just make everything all better. He's not a magical genie that just wipes away your sin. You actually have to take practical steps to deal with your sin. He enables you to do it. He empowers you to do it. But you can't just say, well, I'm struggling with this. God, do something about it not gone. Okay, I can keep sinning. All right, that's, that's not how it works. Jesus doesn't obey for you in that way. Or you can't just pray for God to deliver you from your sin and you just sit there assuming that if God is going to do something about it, then obedience is going to be automatic. Second Peter 1.3 tells us that God has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ. So how are we going to put off the old man and put on the new man with the spiritual power that God gives us through the Holy Spirit? How are we going to replace sinful thoughts, attitudes, and habits with God-honoring thoughts, which inform our feelings, which inform our actions? So what does that look like? What does that look like? Turn with me to Colossians 3.
Colossians 3, 22 to 25. Reads this. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now we must note that slavery in ancient times is not the same thing as American slavery. Many who entered into slavery in ancient times did so in order to pay off debts. Otherwise they were prisoners. But mostly it was to pay off debts. And as a result, slaves who believed in Jesus during their time as slaves still had obligations to serve their masters well because they owed them money. Now, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 7.21 that it is a good thing for those who are enslaved to be freed if they can be freed, but they're not supposed to be overly preoccupied with their freedom. They're just supposed to work hard and pay off their debts. Again, this is ancient slavery that we're talking about, not American slavery, not that grotesque American slavery that reduced men and women who were made in the image of God to nothing more than property. And so this call... For slaves to serve their masters well back in Colossians, it's not disgusting. It's not tone deaf. But it's something that is meant to remind those who work for others how they ought to approach their work to honor God. Paul's point here in Colossians is that we are not to approach our work with a begrudging attitude. You know what that's like, right? Parents and children alike know what that's like. When mom or dad asks you to do something to you, there is a profound, marked difference between, I guess so, to, yeah, sure, I'll do it. There's a profound and marked difference between the two. We're supposed to do all of our work with a joyful attitude, a willing attitude. And the word that Paul uses in verse 23, uh, heartily, that means That literally means from the soul. So the way that you are to go about your work is from the soul. Brothers and sisters, I know that it's hard at times to work well and from the soul. Because I, like you, am a sinner. And I, like you, am tempted to procrastinate. I'm tempted to be distracted by other things. But we are to put all of our being into our act of service to our earthly masters, not because we want to look good so that we can get ahead or get a promotion or whatever, right? but we do so because we are serving God. He says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You don't, you, he's appealing, Paul is appealing to the absolute authority of Christ. He doesn't say the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the Lord Christ. Lord itself is already a title, right? Christ is the Greek word for Messiah or king. So he's doubling down on this master aspect. It is God, the king, that we are serving. Isn't that amazing? In serving men, we can choose, catch that, we can choose to have a different attitude. You might be feeling something, but you can do something about that feeling. We live in a feelings-oriented society. Because we think that our feelings rule everything. It's not true. Your thoughts affect your feelings, which affects your actions. So you can choose, you can choose to have a different attitude, even if your work situation is absolutely awful. Because we know, 
that we are serving God as we're working for men. We should act differently. We should hold ourselves differently because we want people to see the God whom we serve in our lives. Christians strive to please God in our work ethic because we understand that our work is actually not the end goal. Right? It's not the end all. It's not who you are. Even if you find joy in your work, your identity is not wrapped up completely in your work because eventually someone will come along to replace you. Eventually, you will no longer be competent to do the work that you find enjoyable. And so if our work is temporary, if what we do changes over time, our goal in work is to bring honor to God in all that we do, to remember him when you have to do menial tasks, to remember him when you have to do more than you ought to do, to do stuff that's not in your job description, to remember that our own goal is not our uh, our, our goal is not our own good, but to represent God here on this earth as we go about the business that he calls us to do in the way that he wants us to represent him. And we do everything for his glory, his honor. And we have to fight for that mindset. We have to fight for it. But that's what we're called to do. You know, having worked at Costco, I can tell you that a lot of people don't act right. And it was really easy to respond sinfully towards the fresh, uh, towards them when the frustration came, right? When people leave their free sample garbage all over the merchandise, right? There's a garbage can like right there. Just throw it in the garbage can, right? It was easy to respond sinfully when people made my job harder, pushing 14 cars. Hey, can, can you take another two? No, I can't, right? It was easy to be like that. It was easy to be discontent knowing that my goal was ultimately to go to seminary, to, to be a pastor, and here I am with a bachelor's degree pushing a bunch of carts with a, peop- with a bunch of people who didn't finish school. Right? It was easy for me to be tempted, to be prideful, to be angry. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? But something I had to remind myself of is that I, was, that I wasn't working for me. Right? That work wasn't about me. That I couldn't let it be about me. And it certainly wasn't about Costco. Right? Work was and always has been about doing our very best so that as people see our behavior, as they see how we conduct ourselves, they ask us, why are you like that? And it gives us an opportunity to give glory to God. I don't respond in anger and in frustration because I love God and I know that I'm working for Him. It's because... I want to please him in my actions, and so I want to get rid of my anger because it's about me. That's why I'm angry. And I want to stop that. There's there's so much more that I wanted to share with you in terms of a God-honoring view of work. Uh, There's other theological things that I wanted to bring out, but um, what we've covered this morning, it's a helpful conversation starter. As we are reminded of the biblical truths about work, work is God's idea. He appointed work for men to do as a good thing. Sin does come in and it perverts God's good purpose in it, in work. It brings toil into our work, but it also affects the way that we go about our work. However, for those of us who are Christians, God's affirmation of the goodness of work reminds us that we are all to work in some capacity and that we're all to strive to do our best for his glory. So when we head to work, some of us later today, the rest of us 
sometime later this week, let us remember that the goal of our work, no matter what our jobs may be, no matter how hard our jobs are, is to work with the mindset of doing our work as an act of worship to God. It's all an act of worship. It might not make work more enjoyable right away, sometimes at all, but it will remind us that everything that we do ought to be done with excellence and all diligence because we love God and we want to represent him well on this earth. So may God grant us his grace so that we can do all that he uh, has given us uh, to do during this season to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word, how it, how we can draw principles from it regarding work. And we pray that, Lord, even though it might be hard, even though it might be frustrating, even though our sin uh, it comes in and makes it uh, really easy to, um, to disregard the things that you've given us, we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we approach our work, whether it be family-related, caretaking, uh, retail, office work, or any other kind of service job, that we would do so knowing that we represent you in our profession, in our vocation, that you can be glorified even with a simple act. And we pray that you would be glorified as we strive to apply these things in our lives. We're grateful uh, to you for all that you've done, and it's your sense that we pray. Amen.